Get ready for another episode of the SockNet Podcast, where enterprise end users and tech industry experts come together to discuss in the trenches real-world solutions to the challenges faced by today's technology teams. And now your hosts, Yadin Porter de Leon and Tony Piscopo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the SockNet Podcast. I'm Eudine Porter de Leon at Porter de Leon on Twitter. And today, we're actually going to be talking about something that's critically important to companies all over the world, and that's the GDPR, or the General Data Protection Regulation. With me today is James Lothian, technical consultant at Beckla, and my colleague, Drew Nielsen, chief trust officer here at Druva. James, uh, welcome to the show. Morning. James, just for the listeners, could you give them a little bit of information about what you do and uh, how it relates kind of to the topic today? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a technical consultant at Beckler, and uh, my role is, is predominantly around security, uh, but also around asset management and service management as well. Um, and really what I try and do is help our clients go through that journey of assessing their risks and ensuring that we're mitigating those to the best of our ability. Fantastic. And uh, Drew, Drew, what do you do here? Uh, so as you said before, I'm the chief trust officer, but my role is primarily to work with our customers on how to address security and privacy concerns and how, how Druva can help enable and solve those problems. Gentlemen, thanks for being here today. Um, I think what we want to do today is make sure that someone listening to the podcast really walks away with a, a working understanding of GDPR regulation and, and really kind of why it's important to their business and what they should really be doing next. So just to kind of kick it off, uh, for those who are just getting into GDPR, uh, this is a, is a regulation that was passed by the European Union and is going to be going into effect on May 25th of 2018. This really is focused on data privacy for EU citizens and for those companies who process or have a presence in the EU are really going to be needing to take a a hard look at how they do what they do. And so I wanted to maybe start off with you, James. What's what's basically the the focus of the regulation and what's the big thing that's going to be changing? Yeah, um, well, the the GDPR is is really a harmonization of uh, 26 different data protection laws across the EU, um, which obviously was quite difficult to manage. If you've got um, operations in different countries, it was quite complex to be able to manage that data and that that security imperative. Um, So what they're doing now with the GDPR is, is harmonizing that effect across the European Union. So anybody that does business within an EU citizen, uh, within a company or individually, will have to comply and address the concerns of the GDPR, which is really about protecting the privacy of the individual. And Drew, for companies that are outside the European Union, uh, there's some of them seems to be a sense of, well, this doesn't really affect us. Uh, what's, What's the big blind spot for companies outside the EU for this particular regulation? Yeah, I think if you really want to talk about blind spots, it's really about organizations not having visibility into their data to be able to say, am I holding data for an EU citizen? And let's just say I'm a US company and I have EU citizen data and I go, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Well, actually it does because if you read it, there's this extraterritoriality clause in the GDPR that says, you could be anywhere, that EU citizen data could be anywhere, and you are responsible to meet those requirements. Yeah, and I think 
one thing that really struck me was that it wasn't just that I'm processing data or I'm currently actively working on data. It's it's basically anywhere that that data is, or or like you said, it's not even knowing if you have European citizen EU citizen data at all. And most companies don't even have the capabilities to even understand what data they have. If they have somebody's name, uh, an email address, it's as little as something. And maybe maybe James, you could expand on this because my understanding is that the 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 scope of what personal information is has been broadened a lot. And, and can you kind of yeah. maybe talk about the impact of that? It's not just, you know, it's not like social security numbers here in the U.S. or, or other identifiable, you know, information for EU citizens, you know, or the, the equivalent of that. What's, what's included now in what's considered like personal information? The terms in the GDPR is stated that anything that can identify a person as an individual, which is lovely. Like all regulations, the language is a little bit vague, so we're all still learning a little bit on that path. For me, the key ones, obviously, is name, mobile telephone number, email address, any credit card details, debit card details, national insurance number. I've even heard people talk about IP addresses. Yeah. Uh, I've, that's been floating around, too. And uh, is there, I mean, beyond that, too, is there expanding of like, you know, uh, you know, political opinions and, you know, I mean, because it seems like it's it's really broad, like, you know, are tweets and Facebook posts and all of that stuff. I mean, not all that you could be identified by any of that. Yeah, it would seem yeah. that everything is just in play. Yeah. 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 And I guess yeah. there's there's really not going to be a lot of, you know, fundamental guidance until a few of these kind of go through the courts and some big people get stung. And maybe on that point, you could kind of talk about how what was in place before. So what is changing and how is what GDPR does different than what the previous regulation before? Because people had a sense that, well, you know, we had safe harbor and we can kind of make these agreements between, you know, our satellite offices in the EU and the ones in the United States and everything would be okay. And our lawyers say that's fine. And nobody was getting fined. But there's a little more teeth to GDPR, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if you look at the... EU data protection directive before it was you know it was just that it was a directive it was kind of best effort kind of thing but now if you look at the regulation it's like it's very clear it's four percent of your annual revenue if you have a violation or 20 million euros whichever is more yeah yeah so let's 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 highlight let's highlight that again four percent of your annual revenue four percent or 20 million euros I did a little example based on the Sony data breach and in the UK, they, they were fined, I think, uh, £350,000 for their data breach based on a $57.6 billion turnover, which meant under GDPR, they would have been fined about $2.8 billion. Yes. Um, so, in a year, they made a £973 million loss. That's the effect. $350,000 with their fine, but under, let's say, if GDPR was in place and they weren't compliant, that breach would have cost them, what was it? 2.8. 2.8. Yeah. 2.8 billion. So that would be more. Yes, that would be more. <laughs> <laughs> but the key thing is in a year that they made a loss as well. So this would have yeah. taken a sub-billion dollar loss to a nearly, a, well, over a $3 billion loss, which obviously from a shareholder's perspective would have been disastrous. I mean, 900 million loss is bad enough, but taking it to that extent really hits the corporate value. And I think that's actually, that's a fantastic point you brought up, James, because I think the the year of or the time of shareholder activism is is really hot right now 
And I think this might actually be, this is a shareholder issue for most companies. And this should be something that they should be looking at as an active shareholder to be pushing companies to ensure they're, they're compliant because it's gonna hit the bottom line. The first company that gets hit with this, this is gonna be, this is gonna be massive. And this is gonna be a, a big loss to, to shareholder value. And on that point, something came to mind was that since this is so drastic, and we'll get into kind of the details of all the different components of the regulation and, and, and how companies can address it, but I just wanted to, to ask a question before we get, get started. I'll start with you, James. Do you feel like companies were actually given enough time? Because the, the scope of this is so huge and the shift uh, in the companies and the way they do things and handle data is going to be so uh, dramatic. Do you think companies were really given enough time? I mean, May, May of 2018, that's, that's, it's coming up pretty fast. Yeah, um, to be fair, I mean, the act was ratified last year in April, um, which is when I wrote my first white paper on it. So people have had two years. The trouble is, I don't think that it's, again, the problem I find in security is the fact that people get really worried about it when they've had a breach. By then, it's too late. This is it's two point eight billion dollars too late. This is a situation where you cannot afford to wait or hope for the best. This is tangible risk. It's tangible risk if you're not aware of it, and it's tangible risk if you do not comply to it. And there are already insurance companies out there actually offering GDPR insurance. No, that's interesting. What that makes a lot of sense because yeah, there's. But it's interesting that the insurance companies are willing to stick their neck out and actually share some of that risk. For I imagine it's probably a hefty sum if you're going to reduce exposure uh, or share some of that exposure. Um, so maybe we could get into some of the components of GDPR and talk about how companies would actually have to change what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, operationally, procedurally, technology focused to manage the data, to have the visibility. And then I think really dig into that, you know, well, you know, how fast this, this stuff really needs to get put in place so that they're ready. So maybe Drew, you could kind of start off with um, some of the, the key provisions and then maybe talk about what, what you could actually put in place, what processes, what technology you can put in place right. to address them. Yeah, I think the biggest you know, technology related piece as you look at GDPR really comes down to the right uh, to erasure or what, the, what is also called the right to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. And you know, their organizations don't really have a lot of expertise in deleting data. Yet if you look at GDPR, it actually gives the citizen or the data subject, as they're referred to, the ability to go to a data provider or whatever and say, you need to delete my data. Yeah. You need to stop processing my data. You know, like Article 17 says, you have to get rid of my data. Or you have requirements on data portability in Article 20 that says, all right, I want to take my data from one data controller to another data controller. And so I should be able to pick it up in a human-readable format and transfer it to someone. Or show me how you're processing my data. Yeah. Show me the security around the processing of my data, like Article 32 or even you know, if you read Article 25, which is really kind of the most interesting one to me, is it says, you know, when you build something or when you're processing data, you have to have data protection and data security by design and default. You know, and I mean, James and I have talked about this at length and it's it seems very basic. You know, if you're processing, you know, citizen data or critical data, you should have security. But you know, they're actually writing it down and saying, if you will do this, if you don't do this, yeah. you're in violation. And I think executives and executives in, in, in a boardroom would just say, well, yeah, we've got security, right? Oh, yeah, we've got some people who can, you know, see where our data is. But my thought is, especially, you know, talking to a lot of people in the trenches is if you, if someone came to you, one individual came to a, a company, and I think it's a good question to ask yourself as an organization, and said, I want to know where all my data is. 
Could you answer that question? <laughs> All of it. I mean, and when you start thinking about it, this is in databases, this is in storage, this is in tape drives that are archived as backups. Can you? You can't see that. You can't. You can't do a federated search across. Well, you know I mean, all these archived. You know, tapes. add cloud applications to that. Cloud level. applications. I mean, you know, if you if you go into, I mean, and I've walked into rooms of you know executives and said, hey, how many of you guys with an eighty percent confidence level know where all your data is? And nobody throws a hand up. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. And so I think a lot of people will just kind of assume, well, we've got this in place. So let's just go ahead and maybe write up a couple of privacy statements, and then we'll be good. So James, if I don't think that's going to be good enough. What would you say to a company that feels like they could just maybe put out a PR release, write up a couple of privacy statements, and, and say, "This is our encryption. This is our, you know, how we how we monitor this, and and we're good." I tell them a little story. It's a very short one, which is uh, I love stories. I want I, I want to be forgotten by your organizing, but actually, no, I want to actually look at what information you hold on me. You know, there were a few Christmas parties, maybe where I got a little bit larry and some photos might have been taken, or there's some emails I might be concerned about that I really don't want to stay in the public domain or within the corporate domain. So I want to see that information. So not only have I got to go and collate and find that information as, as a corporate end, but then I need to go through that information and redact out the stuff that could cause me another breach. And how many companies do you think are in a position to really do that at this point? None. <laughs> I mean, because I think some of the the most sophisticated companies we think, you know, technologically speaking, who would you know really have curated someone's information, like Facebook. I mean, could Facebook even do that? I mean, because I think that's going to be that that test is can even some of the most sophisticated people who are all about literally their business is personal information. Where is it? Show me all of it. Show me when it was done. Where you took it. All that bits of information. Could they? Could someone like Facebook even? You know, take one person's information and say, look, at across all the different things, the shares, the likes, all the stuff, I want it to go away. I'm a EU citizen. I want everything on Facebook to go away. Do you think Facebook could actually do that? That would be tough. I honestly don't because just for the simple reason, you think how many times a photo was reshared across Facebook and how many times someone actually puts the name of the person against the object. You yeah. need some way, so some way to relate point A to point B. So it would mean they would have to cast a wider net, which means they have to give in, gather in more data, which means it needs to be parsed after they've gathered that data. That's the challenge. So I think in the face of that particular example, I think companies really need to look critically at how they monitor their data. And, and I imagine that they're, they're not anywhere close to the level that Facebook tags, collates, curates all the information. So I think that's probably, there's a massive gap there. And, and I think Facebook, Google are, are, are gonna be challenged uh, with the regulation. So I think uh, other companies really need to take a hard look at how they're storing information. I think what fascinates me though, is you're asked to show where someone's data is. And when you're a company like like a Facebook or like a Google, when that's your whole business, you have maybe a few different tools you can start to tackle the problem with. But when you're a company like uh, like a pharmaceutical company, or you're you know you're you're a lumber provider, or you're I mean you could be you could be any type of industry and have someone's data on it that is you know it is a, a vendor you know you know information you know whether it's all the people who you know happen to work for a third party vendor that is distributor for your company within the European Union, and you happen to be you know connected to them and you process information for the people that work there how, how do you have visibility yeah. to that data and where's that data go into like what's what's that full you know what's the life cycle of that data and i think probably the most fascinating thing is is that not only do you have to know that you're doing it you have to prove that you're doing it and so maybe james you can kind of talk a little bit about that i know you've you've written on it but what are your kind of your some of your thoughts on first of all how do you even have the visibility when a request comes in and, and two how do you actually prove 
that you've, let's say, erased someone's information. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. When I start discussing this with my clients, I mean, I, I start by saying, you know, GDPR is really split into three basic bits as it interfaces with you as a business. There's the regulation itself. There's the governance layer within your organization, which has to set the policies and processes. And then there's IT, which then has to execute against those policies and processes. The first thing, you must have good executive support. And one of the ways I engender that is um, generally through the use of a risk register. So when companies say no to something that the security officers feel is, is required to mitigate risk, that will go on a risk register, and then we sign off against that risk register, the executive that refuses. That tends to help change hearts and minds within a company because nobody likes putting their name against the problem <laughs> <laughs> no one likes to go on record for stuff like that no nope. it, it tends to come back around it, it's what i call a hard no lawyers read things that are written down mm -hmm. exactly it's a hard no you're getting them to make a hard no mm -hmm. or you ask them to you know rethink or review their decision when you start to get into the operational level the first thing you need to understand is what have you got and where is it and do you need it and that's from a data perspective. This, this applies actually to the entire IT estate, but we'll just focus in on the data at the moment. Just to unpack that a little bit, James, I mean, those are not, I mean, they sound like simple questions. It's like, well, where's my data and what kind of data do I have and where is it? They sound really simple and, yeah. and you should be able to, I mean, as an executive too, a leader in his organization, you should expect to be able to have the answer to those questions. But help desks around the world struggle when someone says, hey, I accidentally deleted this file. Can you go ahead and find it for me? And just in a backup, and that's just one location. And where is that, if that backup has then been, you know, moved to another place or if there are cloud applications and then that cloud application is connected to a share and that's shared across multiple teams, those files are not only in the cloud but also synchronizing to individual endpoint devices. <laughs> and now they're actually physical, the files are yeah. physically on hard drives as well as in the cloud because they're synchronized to, you know, globally distributed teams. That help desk person, you know, is just trying to get that one file back. But now you're talking about an organization having to yeah. be able to answer those questions that you just illustrated, James. Where is my data? What type of data? And do I need it? How do and you I answer think, those questions? And I think that's why you need to take a step back into the governance layer and start to go back to the process of how you do things. So I think what we're going to see across the EU and I think eventually across the world is that we're going to see data lifted away from our endpoints and either put into to strategically managed cloud or server locations. So we can start to control things from a central perspective to, again, reduce that risk, allow us to get better metadata on what we're actually holding and if we actually need to hold it. That, to me, is kind of the first step, is, is taking that process and actually enabling it in a way that is then going to help the business address the risk. What would, because there's one thing that, that companies need to do first, is, I, is to find out, am I a, like as a company, am I processing EU data, am I controlling EU data? So there's a, you know, are you a controller, are you a processor? And, and maybe just to start with those, those basic questions, what, what does an organization need to, to look at or ask to figure out if they are actually affected by GDPR? Are they a controller, are they a processor? Look through what you're holding and say, am I holding EU data? And also, are my subcontractors processing data for me? No, oh, that's an I excellent. Mean, that's an excellent point. Are are your subcontractors? Oh, well, I mean, look at Druva. I mean, we are a data controller because we have employees in the EU who we hold data on, but yet we are a data data processor because we process company data for organizations in the EU. So for us, it's very much a balancing act. Even though you know our encryption model and everything else, 
we have no access to their customer data, but we are still processing data on an EU organization's behalf. So you have to answer that basic question of like, am I processing EU data? Do I know where my data is? That's the next one. But if you can't get past the first one, you've got a real problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you could you could have a lot of organizations, and I'm sure you've dealt with this in your experience, James, that don't even know. They can't even answer the question of, are they an EU data controller or processor? What uh, I mean, James, what do you tell an organization if they're you're running into that first problem that, that Drew outlined? They can't even answer that first question. Yeah, I mean, again, that to me goes back to sort of fundamental um, recognition of what GDPR is and that's normally where I will go in and we will create an awareness event within the client to really help make sure that key stakeholders in the business actually understand the risk and their responsibility. So that's where we would start to go in and look at what they do because it's not just the fact of whether you're a processor or a controller. If you're a controller that uses a processor, it's your responsibility to make sure that they comply. That's something that nobody thinks of. Well, I mean, James is right. I mean, if you, if you read the regulation, I mean, Everybody in that data chain, from the controller all the way down to the subject, is liable and they are all in play. Yeah. So, you know, in the case of Druva again, I mean, it's us, it's AWS, and it's then the data subject. So, and you know, like AWS and Azure have come out and said, we're GDPR compliant or we're going to be GDPR compliant. But they're, I mean, they're a processor as well. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it fascinates me is that it's, it is, it's just so broad reaching and because and, data has this web and your, your digital footprint goes just everywhere and it's, it's entangled with other data and it's in a million different places. And because we have like 11 nines of durability, there's multiple copies of it in multiple places and multiple availability zones. And it's fantastic for, you know, business continuity. It's fantastic for durability and longevity of the data, but also uh, you have now a problem of when you want it to go away. How do you make it go away? And I mean, we have, you know, being in, in our business, Drew, we have that advantage of that's our business, you know, 100% is what we focus on. Uh, so we have a lot yeah. of tools of, you know, of being able to search it, find it and manage it in a really, really dynamic way. But this is, I mean, this isn't the business of most businesses. Most businesses, they're no, selling insurance, they're, they're selling cars, or they're trying to, you know, sell an emoji app to you on your phone so you can make cool, cute yeah. little emojis of yourself. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, our one saving grace for Druva yeah. is that we encrypt data using customer unique encryption keys. Mm-hmm. And if you read GDPR, the only technical advice or guidance that they give you throughout the entire document is that you can use encryption. So if you can't delete the data, at least the data is encrypted. That is the only technical piece of advice in that whole document. And then, you know, the rest of it's kind of like, it's very vague. I mean, you know, you can kind of drive a truck through it and say, you know, am I taking good measures to do security, to do governance, to James's point earlier, to have that executive support? So, I mean, it's very, I mean, it's really broad. Let me unpack the piece about uh, good measures too. I mean, James, what, what can what can people do so that they're making best efforts or taking good measures so that when, yeah. you know, like there, there maybe is a breach or there's a question of whether there's a breach, they've really put the process in place. They've got best practices. They've got technology in place to be able to really address this. What, what, what do best practices, what does best effort look like? What I think it is, it's about joined up thinking. I've been doing asset management and service management for about 20 years. And I got bought into this because I am a process person. This is where 
security has done very well and very badly at the same time. So part of what I see as a problem is the fact that when you look at security today within the business, um, and part of what my initial investigation was actually surveying a whole lot of companies, um, most of them have somewhere between 30 and 40 different security vendors that they work with from the endpoint up into the cloud, and none of them talk to each other. That, to me, is a problem. It's a lack of joined-up thinking. And I think this, these, these are areas that people can start to look at as sort of easy wins. So you want to have your firewall in place, your endpoint protection in place. You want to encrypt data at rest, data in motion. You want to have good backup mechanisms. And you want to understand where you want your data to reside and where it currently does reside. And I think those are the initial steps that I'm kind of taking you know, my clients through and sort of helping them deliver. Because most of it they've already done to some way, shape, or means. Most people, well, all companies have a firewall. Most companies have some encryption. Most companies have some endpoint protection. So we've got a, some foundations to work. We just need to look at how we join some of these areas together. And as I say, how we analyze and manage where we want the data to where it currently resides and how we make that transition. I think those are great points, James. I think what I would, I would add to that is really this just sort of notion of security intelligence. And to James's point, you know, none of the tools really talk to one another. And, you know, a lot of people will say they'll take a, a SIM or a security information event management tool and throw everything in there as much as they can to get some level of visibility. Yeah. But, you know, there's just sort of some basic technical measures, some that James were mentioning, but like some other ones around patch management, multi-factor authentication. You know, even if like if you're a software development house like we are as a SaaS provider, you know, is security part of your development life cycle? I mean, there's just this basic security foundation that needs to sort of permeate in the organization. So, I mean, if you're a large organization that's already doing something like an ISO 27001, or you're doing SOC 2, Type 2 already, or, you know, you're doing FedRAMP and you're signing up to the NIST requirements, I mean, you've got something there, but it's really, now how do I scale that? That really becomes the bigger question and saying, okay, is GDPR enough of an umbrella to go out and push that across the organization because like James was saying earlier on the executive support piece, if you don't have executive buy-in to really push that wide, you could theoretically be in trouble with a GDPR breach much more than, you know, say, you know, you, you lose a laptop and there's a few social security numbers on it that's encrypted. It's, the stakes are much bigger now. And this regulation has teeth. I want to go back to one of the points that, that you brought up, James, and that's Central visibility, because I think that's one of the, the critical things. Imagine in an organization now, you probably have to go about 10 different teams to actually process a single request to make sure that you're kind of covering all your bases. And if you know you could have something like you said, that's covering all your you know on-prem infrastructure, all of your cloud applications, plus all of your endpoint devices, and be able to view that through a single pane of glass, uh, that's really sort of the silver bullet, because then you could then search across all of those sources and be able to find, be able to show that you're making sort of best efforts to capture everything in one place, view it through one portal and be able to, to find things across there. I mean, how, how close do you think organizations are to, to doing something like that? 
I think they they have certain components that work that way. I think as an overview, I don't think we're ever going to get past the eighty twenty rule on that. You're always going to have some very specific pieces of security that may not play nicely with others within the short to medium term, the next five to seven years. But I think you know we can look at the technologies that are out there, and we can look at consolidation points that we want to use. Drew mentioned Seams, for instance, or service management as a reasonable example. They're not bad places, you know, if you want to start to create a collation point. The trouble is that it's very noisy. So you get a lot of false positives going in there, which is problematic. So really what we want is a layer that sits above that, that kind of cleans up some of that data before we feed it down. The reason that is so important, this joined up thinking, is we plan in IT, we hope for the best, we plan for the worst. So the worst case scenario is we have a breach, we have a problem, and now we've got 72 hours to collate our information together to provide to whatever data standard organizations you need to report to, the ICO in the UK, for instance. That's not a lot of time. And, you know, my favorite, again, I have always liked little examples. I had to look at a problem with corporate clients through their DNS logs. I had to actually analyze and compare timestamps across 25 logs. It took me about two weeks. Oh, that sounds that was fun. One. <laughs> that was one thing I had to do. <laughs> two long, long, boring weeks. Yes, yeah. and that's that's the solution we have in place. We think we've got well, we've got AI and machine learning and all this stuff, but we don't have it all plugged into one effort, like looking across all these data sources so that you could compare, you know, logs or timestamps on logs, you know, and do that in an hour instead of having you know one person you know do it over a two week period of time. I think where we are now, we're we're rapidly catching up. But, you know, a lot of the major vendors now are starting to see this as an opportunity for them, obviously, as well as actually providing you know a business problem solution which again I think is good so I think what we're going to see is we're going to see you know the major vendors marching quickly to try and take up that marketplace because I think this is a marketplace that is being created the other thing that I would say which is kind of a, a weird thing but it, I, I think actually in a way GDPR for a lot of people with an IT is actually an opportunity there is an awful lot of stuff most IT has evolved over time very little of it is designed and this is the best excuse I've seen since Y2K of actually that that level of change and fixing and resolving stuff. And I think, you know, the GDPR is, is another event that helps with that. Yeah, there usually needs to be a, a serious event that actually changes minds. Uh, and this is the true with ransomware. It's true with a lot of different things where people don't really take action. We're very, we're very reactive. Uh, I think capitalism and humans yeah. as in general are, are very reactive. Uh, I wanted to dig into one thing that you mentioned, though, very briefly. And that's that, that's that reporting time frame. It's 72 hours once there's a breach. What happens if you don't even know there was a breach? And you've passed that 72 hours. And because most of the time, if you if companies were breached, you don't find out until about four years after it happened. And they're like, hey, four years ago, FY everyone. Two hours after you discover it. Yeah, it's after discovery. After you discover it. Okay. So that's I think important so, yeah. distinction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After <laughs> discovery. After discovery. <laughs> Because we just had, I mean, we did, there was just a huge breach uh, recently from a consulting firm that had a whole bunch of voter registration right. information here in the United States, and yeah. there was this was hundred like a hundred or almost two hundred million people uh, in the U.S. and their information, you know, not only their phone numbers, their email addresses, you know, what were their you know political leanings, and sometimes you don't know about it. you don't know about it until a while. So I guess that's that's what the sort of the proof is that. If, if you're gonna have a fine, it'll be okay. We know that you knew on this day and you didn't tell everyone about can it. I, can I just give a quick example against that of why GDPR is so important, not only in, in, within Europe, but the rest of the world? Say for instance, one of your, your citizens has dual nationality. He's an EU citizen and he's an American citizen. You've just lost his data. 
I don't know if that would actually comply, but I think it would. I mean, and that's, I mean, that, that wouldn't be too uncommon, I would imagine. No, you'd have someone with <laughs> yeah. dual citizenship. Yeah. You lost his U.S.-related data, however, yeah. he is an EU citizen. Yeah, you are, <laughs> lost, you are now in violation. <laughs> oh my How goodness. many lawyers out there are thinking, yeah. oh, this is an this, I think uh, we, yeah. we'll edit this podcast later, but just so you know, there was a long moment of silence <laughs> after James gave that example. <laughs> A very long moment of silence. <laughs> uh, that is really, that's, that, you know, it's funny because that, that leads into one of the questions I wanted to ask because I wanted to kind of wrap up. But what, as one of my wrap-up questions, that was, was it exactly something like that. Was it what, what are those things that companies just literally are not even thinking about? I mean, we, we're not going to know until we find out weird situations, corner cases like this. But that's, I wouldn't say that's even really a corner case because that happens a lot. There's a very large number, you could put a number on that annually of people that would fall into that bucket. So that's not, I wouldn't even call, I wouldn't call that an edge case. That's, that's probably a business as usual. You have to find out. And what's, I mean, are there any other examples of like that? That's just crazy off the wall stuff that actually is going to have to be part of your business as usual sort of view of this, of this data processing problem? Yeah, I, I think that we're going to kind of find out as we go here. Yeah. I think, I think. To James's point, there are a lot of attorneys who are gonna, you know, have, have some of, fun with us. A lot of billable hours. A lot there. of billable hours. So people who want to be in. So any. So those of you uh, yeah. in the legal profession, if you're if you're interested in making a career for yourself, there's something called the GDPR that's coming, <laughs> May 18th of 2018. So start reading about it now. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I just I think that until we see the first test case and how it spins out, any piece of data is in play for any EU citizen. That's just boggling. That it's just blows my mind. The limit. That just blows my mind. Someone becomes dual citizenship just blows us yeah. up. That's amazing. Yeah, completely. I've never thought about that until this call. What's what's that? The first big thing that companies I think think that they have covered, but they really don't. What's that first thing they should be looking at? I'll give you one that I found out after sitting down and chatting with a barrister that I never thought of, and that's physical data. Bits of paper with people's names on are covered by the GDPR. One of the first things I'm trying to implement internally at Beckler as part of our process of moving towards compliancy is we're going to take everybody's business cards who's got business cards on their desks in drawers, in cupboards, in wherever, and we're going to scan them, get rid of them. So then we can manage them from an electronic point of view rather than a physical point of view. And I think anybody that keeps physical archives may want to think whether they actually want to do that for the periods of time that they do. I think we're going to see physical archives actually drop down. This could be the thing that actually drives maybe, you know, my dentist or somebody to take all those files that are on the wall and actually make them digital instead of having these file cabinets. Because yeah. that's interesting because somebody who has a Rolodex, a Rolodex, you know, for those of you who don't know what a Rolodex is, it's a little cards with a bunch of people's information on it so you know what, what phone number to call. They can have a Rolodex and if someone says to the company I want to be erased and but there's still a card sitting in someone's Rolodex that that actually they're still in violation because they have not that person hasn't been erased. That's fascinating. James and Drew, thank you both for joining this conversation. I think it gives a lot of people something to think about. Pleasure. Thanks, Eugene. Pull up your socks.